Today we're doing prophets, um, and uh, all of these kind of go in order of chrono you know, chronological <clears throat> order. Uh, so we're going to do Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Joel, Isaiah, and Micah today. All right. Uh, so get ready to to roll. Um, it's going to be a lot. Um, I'm not really going to spend a whole lot of time on this. I spent, I sent out, uh, I gave you all that handout last week, uh, but we're in the period of the kings, right here, um, to here. Really, that's where all the prophets are. So right there on the timeline of the history of Israel. Okay. Let me, uh, let me pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray, God, that you will use this lesson. Uh, to help us to understand your word better, that we may know you better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, I'm going to do a quick summary of kind of where we're at. So, in the year 9, 930 B.C., the Hebrew nation split into two nations. And then for over 200 years, um, two separate kingdoms continued side by side. In the north, you have um, in the north you have Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, uh, and they're a totally apostate kingdom. In the south, you have Judah, uh, with Davidic kings, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them a combination. Before the north was uh, destroyed, it went through a period of great prosperity under the king. Uh, Jeroboam the second. So there's two Jeroboams. If you look at that outline, you see one at the very top of the of the uh, southern kingdom, northern kingdom, and then one kind of most of the way down. Judah continued um, all on its own for 120 years, and then uh, in 586 BC, uh, the Babylonians. Uh, destroyed Judah and took the people away into exile. Uh, the reason for that was their apostasy. All right, so now we're going to look at Jonah. Um, I may have skipped something there, didn't I? I skipped the Assyria thing, but that's fine. Y'all saw it. Um, all right, so Jonah. So Jonah preached uh, before the northern kingdom fell. Uh, and he preached in the northern kingdom. Uh, and during the, this time of Jonah preaching, uh, they, had, they were under the king Jeroboam II. And uh, Israel enjoyed a time of great prosperity, wealth, peace. Um, it was a, a glamorous time to be a Jew at that point. Okay? <clears throat> it was a time of widespread religion with no heart. Uh, there were three prophets who preached during this time in Israel, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, uh, which we're going to talk about today. Um, Jonah came from a small village called Gath-Hefer, or Hefar, I don't know, um, three miles north of Nazareth. So Nazareth is there. I couldn't find a map with a Nazareth, so I, I wrote it in. So just think about three miles north of Nazareth, right about there. There's Jerusalem, and um, there's Samaria, the capital of Israel. Jerusalem's here. So you have the southern kingdom, northern kingdom. He's way up in the northern part of the northern kingdom. Yep. 
right. So many believe that Jonah was trained in one of Elisha's schools. So Elijah and Elijah, the prophets had schools. Um, the book of Jonah is a uh, is not a prophecy. Uh, it's in the normal sense. It's more of a history of a prophet. Um, it's a straightforward narrative. So the story of, of Jonah, most people know it. You know, God commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh, um, capital of the growing country of Assyria, uh, who, who Israel's, Israelites did not like. Um, the same city would be the same country, would be the same country that destroys Israel 60 years later. Uh, Jonah has a great fear when God calls him to go to Syria, and that fear is God is going to transfer his love from Jerusalem or Jews to this, the Assyrians. And he doesn't want that. So what does he do? He rebels, right? He goes the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, goes, tries to go to uh, uh, Tarsus, right? Um, and uh, we know the story. God um, comes in, uh, ship is doomed, bring, brings a storm. Jonah is over, you know, thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish. Three days later, he prays, and the fish vomits him up on the shore um, on dry land uh, near Assyria. And um, then God's voice comes to him again and says, go. So this time he obeys. And he goes and he preaches the message. And uh, his message, a great sermon, awesome sermon. His message is what? In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was basically the content of his message. No, no real, you know, how do you, how do you find salvation or anything like that. Just, you're about to die, all of you. And I'm, I'm happy about it, too. Okay? And um, uh, Jonah um, uh, is frustrated uh, the people repent, and Jonah's angry. Instead of hoping that the people would repent, he hopes that they'll be destroyed. Right? Jonah 4, 5, that's what he hopes would happen. He longs for judgment to fall on them. Uh, so Jonah climbs the hill outside of town, uh, is overlooking the city, safely away from the destruction he hopes befalls them. And uh, God raises his hot and everything, so God raises a plant for him. And he finds comfort in the shade. And then a worm comes, eats up the plant. And then it gets even hotter. And he's just all distraught and angry. Right? Um, and the, the book of Jonah closes with um, Jonah 4, 9 through 11. <clears throat> but God said to Jonah, do, I, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. You know, think about a petulant boy, right? I do. And I'm angry enough to die, right? But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and, and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and as many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? So God is very concerned with these people, um, and Jonah is not. All right, so the historical view of Jonah is that there's two of them. One is an allegory. Um, that's an imaginary story that carries a, a lesson, like Aesop's fables, right? Um, 
The second view is that the book is genuinely historical. Why would some people think it's an allegory versus genuinely historical? They don't believe you can live in a billion future. Yeah, they don't believe in miracles, basically. All right? They don't believe in the sovereignty and the power of God to perform miracles. All right? Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Jesus affirms that this happened. Okay? Um, and he says that uh, he will experience something similar to Jonah. Right? Uh, Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish. Jesus was three days in the tomb. So the book has a predictive uh, purpose and a, and a typical purpose. Um, it's predictive in that uh, Jonah was a type of Christ, or predictive in what Christ would do, and, and, and typical in that as well. Um, so we must accept Jonah as sober history. It was true. It happened. It's real. Um, the details are recorded as historical. So Jonah teaches the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So we have God's sovereignty over the storm, the placement of the fish, the journey in the, in the fish and its vomiting of Jonah on the shore, the work of repentance, the growth of a plant, growth of a worm and hot wind. Um, Jonah also teaches human responsibility. So we have a balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, so it teaches a human responsibility in that the prophet disobeys God and is set straight by God. And then you have um, a, a heathen, terrible country, unrepentant nation, is called to, re to repent. They're going to be held responsible if they do not repent. So we see God, in this book, we see God's display of patience and mercy. All right. That is Jonah. Oh. Um, last part. There is not one detail that um, God does not control, yet men and women are personally accountable to him. God displays patience and mercy. All right. Oh, got one more slide. Main lessons of Jonah. God is, God is patient. Uh, he insists on working his purposes through men, despite our frailties and disobedience. Right? He chose Jonah. He could have chosen any, anyone. He could have done it, done it any way. But he, chose, he chooses to work through us, despite uh, the fact that we are frail and disobedient. God's mercy isn't limited to one nation. It's not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. It must be proclaimed to both Jews and Gentiles. Wherever and whoever turns to God in repentance, Jew or Gentile, God's anger is averted. And then Christ's death and resurrection by which mercy flows were in the divine plan before Christ walked the earth. Okay, so God is working this all out. Um, I would love to have time of discussion and dialogue and questions. If you've ever been in another one of my Sunday school classes, I do that a lot. Um, but because of the way this content is, it's really hard. So 
Uh, feel free to pipe in with a question, but I'm I'm going to move on in the lecture. If we have time at the end, we'll do more more of that. Okay, so I apologize that I can't do more than than I typically like to. Um, all right, so the book of Amos. So we just did Jonah. Right, so that was uh, that was ten minutes. So we're, we're good. We're doing well. Um, the book of Amos. All right, so name Amos's name um, means a burden bearer. All right, so it's to carry a burden. Uh, in this book, we have a man who has a burden from God that must be unloaded. All right, a word that must be preached. That's his burden. Amos is found nowhere else in the Bible. There are other Amoses, but they're not this Amos. Right, so he's he's nowhere else in the Bible. He just this is what he this, this is the only reference to him is his book. Amos comes from a city. Um, called Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So there's Jerusalem right here. And he's about 10 miles south of that. Okay? Um, kind of near the Dead Sea. Amos was a shepherd. And... Um, in Amos 7.14, we also see that he had another job. He was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Um, and this is a fruit that is not very palatable. It's really only suitable to the very, very poor. right? So it's not like a pineapple right? that everybody wants to eat. Um, so it's a very, very poor fruit. Um, and uh, he was raised, his, the part of Israel that he was raised in was a very impoverished part of Israel. The sheep there, the 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 goats and the and whatnot were very poor animals, very poor poor flock, inferior sheep, inferior fruit. Um, he was called to be an apo- a prophet um, in Amos seven fifteen is where it talks about it, and uh, uh, he was faithfully tending his flock while he was called. And what we see in that is we see that uh, he who is faithful with the little things. God will entrust with much. So Amos is an insignificant person in a very insignificant small town, very poor, poor of the poor. The fruit that they ate, nobody wanted to eat this fruit. It was, it was nasty, okay? Um, and that's what he did. And yet God called Amos to go and preach the gospel, be a prophet. God called Amos to go to the northern kingdom. He's from the southern kingdom, right? Uh, he's the only one that that, um, that God called to go from the south to the north. Um, <clears throat> why did God choose to send somebody from you know from Judah to go to the north? Um, why import somebody from the outside? We don't know. There's no there's no reason given. Um, but God makes His prophets appear when and where they're needed most, right? And so Amos, God figured was the right man to go. To the, to the north and preach the gospel there, or preach his message there. During um, the northern kingdom during this time, again, was rich. Um, they're at the height of their wealth and prosperity. Um, and as a result, the nation is filled with luxury and excess. Um, 
There's no immediate threat of war, and every business was booming. The rich became very rich. The poor became very poor. Um, they were, uh, there was uh, rampant idolatry. There was exploitation of the poor, indulgent sin. Uh, there was a total breakdown of honesty and godliness amidst the people. When you look at that list... What do you think about it? <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's pretty uh, compelling, right? That's that's what that's kind of where we're at. Um, so you can find some uh, parallels here, maybe. Um, so Amos, he sent to the north to tell them that destruction is near, all right, and it is near. It's about to happen. In about thirty years, they're about to be destroyed. Amos preaches with great energy vividness and simplicity. Uh, if you read the book of Amos, he uses an incredible amount of illustrations. Right? It's illustration after illustration. Uh, just to name a few, you have a bird in a nest, two men meeting in the desert, um, shepherds snatched from a lion, or snatching from a lion, a basket of overripe fruit, sycamore trees, um, a wagon loaded down with cheese, cattle driving, birds and snares, corn, winnowing, sowing, plowing, reaping, and, and many more. All right? I mean, tons of illustrations. The amount of illustrations that he uses is unprecedented and unmatched anywhere else in the Bible except our Lord's parables. Okay? Um, so you see some... As you read Amos, you, you, you see a reflection. You, you kind of get a glimpse of some of what Jesus, how he taught as well, uh, the, the illustrations that they used. The uh, Amos was so impassioned in his preaching that he was charged with sedition. Okay? So he was, he was extremely zealous and uh, to the point where um, they wanted him out of there. So the message of Amos, God has fixed moral absolutes. God deals with nations by his ethical standards. All nations are guilty, but Israel is especially guilty because they sin knowingly. Therefore, Israel's punishment is going to be especially severe. Right, and that's actually in, in uh, Amos 3.2. God wants Israel to return to him. But if they don't return, judgment is certain. Right, and that's in chapter 5. And then Israel is will be restored. We see that in Amos 9. We're going to read these, these two here in just a second. So Amos 9. Uh, Israel will be restored. And then... In Acts, we see that the apostles, the apostles declare the fulfillment of this, of this uh, restoration. Right? So Amos 9, 11 through 15. It's up, it's, oh, it's up there. Um, somebody read that? I can't really see it. Anybody want to read that? Amos 9, 9 uh, 11 through 15. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, 
so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will build the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And then in Acts 15, 12 through 21, they declare the fulfillment of this prophecy. So Paul and Barnabas just got finished with their missionary journey, and they come back and return from that, and they give a report to the church leaders. And this is what they said. Somebody read that for me. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling them about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how at first God showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this, as it is written. And this is this is straight from, um, from the book. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may see the Lord, and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. All right. So next, Hosea. Hosea is an awesome book, by the way. Uh, very uh, compelling book. Um, as a quick aside, uh, I, I went to RTS Charlotte for a little while, and uh, I remember walking through the library there, a bookstore library that they had, and there was a book that stood out because its, it's title was, was, was just glaring, and, it was, uh, and I bought it, <laughs> and the title was Whoredom. I was like, I'm walking through this library in a, in a, you know, in a seminary, and I'm like, Hordom, what the heck? And I pulled it out, and it was a commentary on Hosea. Okay, um, Awesome book. Uh, highly encourage you all to read it. Um, so the name, Hosea's name, means salvation. Uh, it's a version of the names Je Joshua and Jesus. Hosea is a prophet to the north when the northern kingdom falls. He was a native of the northern kingdom and probably the son of a farmer. We know that based on, or we speculate that based on some of the uh, language he uses and illustrations. He ministered uh, for a very long time, from 754 to 714 BC. He ministered during the reign of seven northern kings. So if you look at your outline there of that, uh, he's, he's there during the reign of seven uh, of the northern kings and four of the southern. Hosea is known as the weeping prophet or the prophet of the broken heart. And he pleaded with Israel to repent for 40 years. He pleaded with them, please repent. But Israel did not repent, did not heed his warning. But, it, but Hosea did not fail as a prophet. 
Okay, He did what he was called to do. Sometimes, as we share the gospel with people, they will respond favorably, and other times, not. Our job is to preach, right? That's what Hosea did. He preached the gospel. So there are three themes in Hosea that are repeated three times. And you can kind of see that in the outline that I, that I have uh, in there as well. But there are three themes repeated three times. The first theme is sin. And that is stressed or must be stressed because God is holy. The second theme that is repeated three times is punishment. And that must be stressed because God is just. The third theme that is, stre- uh, that is, is repeated three times is restoration. And that must be stressed because God is love. Right? So you'll see those themes repeated three times. The narrative of Hosea um, is uh, Hosea married Gomer, uh, and she wasn't true to him. She was a woman of whoredom and had children of whoredom. Hosea goes to her shameful place and buys her back and restores her. Just as he married, just as Hosea married Gomer, Jehovah is married to Israel. Just as Gomer, just as Gomer becomes untrue to Hosea, Israel is unfaithful to the Lord. Just as Gomer is enslaved by her other lovers, Israel is enslaved by the very nations in which it puts its trust. And then just as Hosea restores Gomer, Jehovah has a glorious future for his people in Romans 9. And then uh, we see that in Romans 9. Uh, Paul talks about it. Um, And then Gomer was brought or bought back with a price. By, by, uh, by Hosea, and Christ bought his bride with his blood. Um, I would love to go into Hosea a little bit more, um, but uh, again, we've got a, we've got a survey here, uh, but it's a great story. I encourage you to read it um, uh, and see, see what God put Hosea through. I mean, just think about it. Um, the man was was in love with this woman who would not love him and constantly went astray. And he had to go to the whorehouse and buy her out um, repeatedly. Um, just that is what God's love is for us because we are the idolaters. You know, we're the ones going out and being unfaithful. So should we read Hosea as Gomer or as Hosea? We're Gomer in that story. <laughs> so God is Hosea in that story. And the name Hosea is another another name for that is Jesus or Joshua as well. It's interesting how many of the names of the prophets in their books relate very closely to what they write about. It's very interesting. <clears throat> I don't know what you take from that, but it's very interesting. All right, Joel. So Joel's name means Jehovah is God, right? Joel ministered in Judah. Um, He was a native of Judah uh, and probably or possibly Jerusalem. They think that because 
he has some knowledge of the temple that's written about. Amos and Joel were probably buddies. They're probably good friends. Uh, they, there's some comparison between some of what they wrote. One of them is Joel 3.16 and Amos 2.1. Very similar uh, in, in the way they wrote. Probably went to the same school, all that kind of stuff as well. The main concept of this book is the day of the Lord, the great, the day of great reckoning. Okay, there's a plague of locusts. That's what the book is is referring to. In fact, locusts. I think there are 13 different words for the word locusts used in the book. Um, you know, I mean, didn't know there were that many words for that, but a lot of them are used in there. All right, so the outline of Joel is um, uh, it's in your in your handout as well, but you have the peril of forsaking God. So the, it starts off with uh, this is what happens when you when you forsake God. Uh, the situation that they're in is filled with great desolation. Uh, the land is ravaged by locusts. The cause of this this desolation is the Lord. The Lord is bringing judgment upon the people. The reaction of the people, they're unmoved. They're unrepentant. They're like, oh well. <laughs> right? Um, stubborn. Um, maybe we've had a child who's been that way, right? Um, they're being punished, but they don't seem to care. The future, God will bring worse upon them. Because they continue doing this, it's just going to get worse. And then there's an appeal. God appeals to them. He says, the door of mercy is open. It's still open. Please repent. It's open. Okay. And then it says, if, if you do return to me, there's sweetness in returning to me. Uh, the manner in which you come to me. It'll be in weeping, weeping and bitterness and repentance. Uh, the blessings, though, will be, be full. Um, they'll receive... Incredible blessings from that. Then the outline continues. The future blessings. What are some of these blessings? Um, they have future blessings. One of them is the uh, the privileges that they'll have of Christ's church. This is uh, going to the to the church um, in Jonah or Joel. Excuse me. In Joel two uh, twenty eight through twenty nine, we see. Um, a foreshadowing or a prophecy of um, Pentecost. <clears throat> Somebody read that. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then in Acts. Somebody read that. Now, this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. Uh, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we see in Joel the, the prophecy of 
the Pentecost and then here at Pentecost, um, they quote Joel. Okay? Um, and all people will receive God's Spirit. Not just the prophets, not just the priests, but all people will have God's Spirit dwelling in them. So then we have um, God will overthrow the enemies of his people. He will always take the side of his people. Uh, the lesson, uh, that lesson right there, uh, that God will overthrow the enemies of his people, is basically repeated three times um, in there. Uh, the ultimate one at the very end, 18 through 21, is culminating in what God will do in heaven. Okay, so it's the culmination of where we'll go in heaven. Okay? That's Joel. Isaiah. <clears throat> can't believe I have Isaiah put in this, in this section. Um, so all of these books deserve a, you know, at least a whole lesson or two or three on themselves. Isaiah deserves an entire semester. Okay? Um, but we're going to address it pretty quickly. Um, but that's fine. All right? So it's a survey. Isaiah means Jehovah is salvation. That's what his name means. Right? And you think about what his book is talking about, and that's what he talks about. Isaiah began to preach. Oops, I went too far. Isaiah began to preach to Judah about 17 years before the northern kingdom disappeared. He was the son of Amos, Amos who was someone prominent uh, because he's mentioned 13 times in the Bible. So his father is mentioned 13 times. Um, he was cousin of King Uzziah. I didn't know that. Um, uh, he's, he's close to the royal family because of that. He was married to a prophetess. So you had a prophet and a prophetess married together, married to each other. Um, he had two sons, and uh, this was back when they named, the prophets named their kids some interesting things. So I could have given you names for Hosea's kids as well, but I decided not to, but here I'm going to do it. Um, so Isaiah's first, one of his son's names was Maher Shalal Hashbaz, all right? That's a mouthful, but what does it mean? The meaning of his name was hastening to the spoil hurrying to the prey. And it's a picture of a ferocious wolf about to pounce on a lamb and take it away. And that, by the way, is the theme of the first 39 chapters of his book. God is going to pounce on Israel because of its sin and lack of repentance, venting his rash wrath on them by the nation of Babylon. Second son's name is uh, Shir Jashub, and that means a remnant shall return. Uh, that's also interestingly, chapters 40 through 66 have a strong promise that Israel will return from exile. A remnant will return, right? So he named his sons these two things, and he wrote his book, um, in that, in that way. Kind of interesting. Um, Isaiah was a very educated man. Uh, he used more vocabulary words 
than any other Old Testament book. Uh, I didn't study Hebrew, but the person who, who, uh, who I've listened to on this and read about this said that uh, Hebrew students find the book of Isaiah to be a nightmare to study because of its all the words in it. Tons and tons of words. Okay. Isaiah was a genius, a poet, a statesman, and a preacher. Isaiah was also killed by the, uh, by the saw. He was sawn in two um, during the reign of Manasseh. Uh, it's believed that when you read the Hall of Fame, uh, or Hall of Faith, excuse me, uh, in uh, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 37, it talks about different ways people died. One of those is sawn in two. It's believed they're referring to Isaiah on that. So, um, he ministered to, or during a time of great fear and insecurity. So, if you look at your um, your little timeline, you can see kind of where he was uh, during that. Uh, during the time that he lived and preached and ministered, Assyria was 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 coming into power. Assyria was a cruel nation. Uh, it was ever-expanding, ever-threatening all its neighbors. It was a torturous nation. They were, they were terrible, what they did to people. Um, and Syria, not Assyria, so Assyria is the, the big ravaging country. Syria is a little small country. Um, I don't have the map up, but right near Israel. Uh, Syria and Israel uh, form an alliance to fight, to, to defend themselves against Assyria. And, um, and they try to force Judah to join them. Isaiah counsels the king, Hezekiah, and the leaders um, not to join him. He counsels them to uh, trust in the Lord. Israel falls, and many of Judah's politicians want to get help from Egypt and other power, another world power. And again, Isaiah says, trust in the Lord. Um, he tells Hezekiah to uh, trust in the Lord. Hezekiah comes on the throne, and he does so. He trusts in God. And what happens? God delivers them from Assyria. Little old Judah, remember that map at that point in time? After, little old Judah fought off Assyria multiple times. Um <clears throat> Because Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. But, um, as we talked about before, there was a moment of weakness by Hezekiah. Um, in his pride, he showed off his treasury and his armory uh, to some ambassadors from Babylon. And uh, as a result, um, Babylon will be uh, eventually taken into captive captivity because of that. All right? All right, so the book of Isaiah has great versatility. So in the book, you see pleadings, prophecies, and predictions. You see psalms, consolations, and descriptions of the suffering of Christ. Um, Isaiah 7.14. Um, have somebody read that for me. Isaiah 7.14. We have a prophecy of Jesus. I didn't put it up there. Isaiah 7.14. 
himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Okay. And we'll, we'll see that in a minute in Micah as well. And then in Isaiah 53, we see the sufferings and the glory of Christ. Uh, the sufferings of Christ and the glory that is to follow. Um, you know, we're actually doing pretty good on time. Uh, Isaiah 53 is a good book. Let me just look at it real quick. I'm shocked I'm going so well on time. How about we uh, we read it? Have a couple people read through it. Not 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 someone has to read all of it, but maybe read um, Isaiah fifty three verse one. You know, it's it's uh, 12, 12 verses. So have three people read four verses. How, how about that? Anybody want to do that? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is, that is before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9, someone else? Nine through the rest. And they made his grave with the wicked, uh, with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, shall the right righteous one, my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to, the de to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Alright. So Isaiah 53 obviously alludes to um, and communicates the suffering of of Christ and the glory that is to come. All right, so the outline of Isaiah. Um, the outline of Isaiah is surprisingly easy for a, for a book of 66 chapters. Um, this is something I didn't know. This is pretty interesting to me. Um, it's, it's similar to the Bible. All right? So 
the Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has two main parts, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the, in the New Testament. Isaiah has two main parts, 39 chapters in the first um, Yeah, the first 39 chapters and then the second 27. The prevailing theme of the Old Testament is law. The prevailing theme of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah is judgment, which is the spirit of the law. The prevailing theme of the New Testament is grace. The prevailing theme of the second of the 20, last sec, 27 chapters of Isaiah is comfort, which is the spirit of grace, right? So I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, so um, pretty easy to outline it uh, as you look at it. If you want to go to the judgment chapters, it's going to be one of the first 40, um, all right, or 39. Um, and then look at your outline. Um, and uh, outline of, of uh, Isaiah. Oh, I don't have one. Thank you. So your outline of Isaiah um, is broken down into into. That's Micah. All right, so you can see there on the outline, you know, it has judgment, chapters 1 through 39. Uh, chapters 40 through 66 are comfort. Um, so you have three parts in the first section. Uh, chapters 1 through 12, mostly discourses addressed to Judah and Jerusalem. You know, do not trust in Assyria, but in Jehovah, who will bring salvation. Chapters 13 through 35 is mostly composed of warnings with a few sections of promise, uh, but it's trust in Jehovah, no other countries. Chapters 33, 36 through 39 is a review of the reign of Hezekiah. Um, the purpose there is to show that those who trust in the Lord will be delivered. And then the second section of the book is about comfort, and he speaks about the exile and its consequences. He speaks about what will fall um, on the Israelites and, and the hope uh, uh, that they'll have, that the believers will have, and the comfort that is to be found in God. The, those prophecies um, in, the, in that section of comfort are, um, and this is the poetic side of Isaiah, uh, showing forth here again, is it's split. Uh, the, you have three groups of prophecies split into nine chapters each. All right, so for those 27 chapters, they're split. Nine chapters each. The first two sections end with, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And then right in the middle of those 27, so uh, right in the center of that, um, given place of prominence in, in that poetic uh, part, is Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. Like right in the middle. And that is, 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the core message that he has in that comfort section. Okay? just thought that was interesting as well. Um, all right. Any before I move into Micah, any any comments, thoughts, questions? I encourage you to read Isaiah. It's a hard book to read, um, frankly, but um, uh, maybe with this understanding of this outline and, and, and understanding the the way it flows, try try to read it again. It might help make sense better. All right, Micah. So Micah means, his name means, who is like God, all right? Um, he is a prophet to Judah. He's from a town called Mor, Morsheth Gath. <laughs> Say that fast. Morsheth Gath. Um, and that's located about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, on the main road between Jerusalem and Egypt. So it was a, it was a, thoroughfare, um, somewhere around where I put right there. So there's no, I couldn't find a, a map for it, so I just, I guessed it's around there. But it could be in that general vicinity, okay? Um, Micah was alive during the time of Isaiah. You see that on your, on your, chart, on your flow chart there of it. Uh, and they were likely good friends. Right? And uh, they also preached a very common message. Micah lived during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And he started preaching in the northern before the northern kingdom fell. He probably preached between 740 and 695 B.C. He's the only prophet who preaches to both the both kingdoms, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we know that because in Micah 1.1, it says that. <laughs> he preaches to Samaria, which is the capital of the north, and Jerusalem, the capital of the south. One of the interesting features in his book is uh, the rhetorical question. Um, he has a bunch of them. Uh, you read through it, there's going to be a rhetorical question after rhetorical question. Um, there's, a, there's a list of them right there, some of them, they're, they're not all of them, uh, but quite a few rhetorical questions are in there. Um, and maybe a takeaway for, for that is, um, you know, there's power in a question, right? And you see Jesus sometimes asking. When he gets asked a question, he asks a question in return, right? Um, there are several prophecies in Micah that were fulfilled. Um, and by the way, uh, I didn't mention this in Isaiah, uh, but on the, um, on the handout on the second page of Isaiah, it talks about um, the theory, uh, unity of Isaiah and the theory. And so what that's discussing, what that's referring to is uh, there are some people who believe Isaiah actually had three authors. Because this, this, the, uh, the specifics of his prophecies and how detailed they were, it was like they didn't, 
there's no way you could have predicted that that closely, that time or that person or that name or any of that kind of stuff. And so they have theories that say chapters 1 through 39 is true Isaiah, chapters 4 through 40 through 50 is a second Isaiah, and 56 through 66 is a is a third Isaiah. Uh, but then the um, uh, the rest of that, you can read that other part later, but um, basically Jesus, Matthew, Luke, variety of others refer to Isaiah as being Isaiah, just one, right? Um, and the takeaway there really is you got to trust in the you know trust in the in the Lord and that he, he is sovereign and his prophecies are true right so that's that's what we have there and here in Micah that's what made me think of it is we have many many prophecies that were fulfilled through Micah so Micah one six through seven he predicted the fall of Samaria which was not, uh, so and that happened he predicted that Assyria would invade Judah, and that happened in 702 B.C. He predicted the fall of Jerusalem, and that happened in 586 B.C. He prophesied that the Judah would be exiled to Babylon. Now, put that in perspective, though. When he prophesied that, Babylon wasn't even a figure on the map, so to speak. They were a small kingdom. They weren't a threat to anybody. And he prophesied that. People thought, that's crazy. Why would, why would you go to Babylon, right? It happened. Okay, 586. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> in Micah 7, 11 through 15, he predicts the return uh, from exile for Judah. And that happened in 520. And then um, he predicts in uh, Micah 5, 2, the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. And we'll look at that. Or we'll look at that in a minute. Um, so the themes. The themes of Micah, you have um, a remnant. Right? So if you look at your outline, <clears throat> uh, you'll see in the, uh, in, the, in the text of the outline, remnant. Um, so as we, read, as we read any part of the Bible, let's not forget God's promise and God's uh, love for the remnant. He's always going to have a remnant. And so... Micah is discussing that. So in the outline, you have Jehovah's controversy with the capitals. Um, and uh, the remnant will be blessed. You have Jehovah's controversy with the rulers, the prophets, the priests, and the princes. The remnant will, um, will be rescued from Babylon. And then Jehovah's controversy with the people. And then you have the promise that the remnant shall be blessed when Jehovah will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So there's a promise there. With all these judgments, there's also a promise to the remnant. That's what Micah 5, 7 uh, through 8 discusses. Um, even though God is against them, he will always preserve a remnant. Micah also talks to every class of person. Um, you know, you'll see, he'll, he'll be talking to um, the rich, the poor, the male, female, prince, prophet, priest, leaders, servants, everybody. Okay, um, He addresses them all. And then um, in Micah uh, 6, 6 through 8, God says, uh, or he says here, that God doesn't want a religion. 
but he wants a personal relationship, a walk. And we'll, we'll look at that verse. Uh, so Micah 6, 6 through 8. Somebody read that for me, please. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, or your God. So, God isn't concerned about all the offerings, um, rivers of oil, you know, um, thousands of rams, uh, and all of that. What does he want? He wants us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. He wants a relationship with us. Um, and that's what Micah is, is saying to the people. It's not about this, in, this, this rote religion and this, this religion of works. It's about a relationship with God. And Jesus came and, uh, and made that relationship possible to all of us. So praise God for that. Um, that's it. So we got through all six. <laughs> um, any thoughts, questions, comments? <laughs> Thank you. All right, well, let me pray, and we'll go worship. Lord God, we praise you for your grace, your goodness, your mercy, and all things. We praise you for these prophets we just we just discussed, and thank you for the historical record uh, for putting that down, and, and so that we may read it and be blessed by it today. I pray pray that we will be blessed by it. God, I pray that you would uh, be with Tim as he preaches. Preach through him, use his message to prick our hearts and cause us to love you more. Help us to worship you with spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.